Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, continuing the debate on the health benefits of biweekly colonics. Nope, I did not agree to that. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. Hey, Mark. What up, Thomas? How are you? Uh, you know, I'm living the dream. What dream? I don't really know yet. I just know it's a dream. We'll see if it's a good one or not. Okay. Since our last recording, uh, you know, not too much happening in my in my world. We had a COVID exposure, so we were isolated for a little while. Nobody got sick. That's fun. That's about the, the extent of my excitement. I have recently been revisiting, I don't know if you've heard of the anime Fooly Cooly. Nope. It came out sometime like 10 to 15 years ago and is weird and bizarre and amazing. Essentially, this kid gets hit on the head with a bass guitar by some alien chick riding a Vespa and robots start coming out of his head. That sounds quite unfortunate. Yes, but the soundtrack is amazing. It was mostly done by this Japanese band called The Pillows. They're a incredible just kind of college rock sound. A lot of it just reminds me of Super Chunk. Sometimes it goes for like kind of a Pixies fill, sometimes Sonic Youth. Oh, yeah? It's just this big, wonderful 90s sound in Japanese. Hmm. So I understand very little of it, but it's amazing and I love it. By very little, you mean nothing at all, right? Well, watashi wa nihongo ga hanasemasu. So I pick up on a couple of words. Hmm. You've also been doing a little traveling, right? A little bit. Just family yeah. stuff. Nice. Although I, I guess I did get to see Coheed in Houston, so that was fun. Seeing Coheed is always fun. I love them. I'd seen them before, but I also finally got to see Alkaline Trio, which was also exciting. Nice. I've never seen Alkaline Trio live. Never seen them either, and, and I enjoyed them quite a bit, so that was quite pleasant. Cool, man. Yeah. I spent a lot of time listening to Garbage. It was an, it was an interesting trip down memory lane. And to be clear, the band, we're not just calling... I'm not talking about this Garbage. I'm just saying I've also been listening to Garbage. It's possible that you've been listening to, to Garbage, but I listen to good music. So. I've also been trolling people at work. We do a thing where we have hot takes when we hire somebody new. Okay. And uh, I just decided to start coming up with random things like Rihanna is better than Beyonce. Apparently, that's a hot topic for people. I like it. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. Tonight, we are talking about the mid-90s rock band, question mark, Garbage. The band from the 90s, Garbage. Yes. Garbage is a band that comes out of Madison, Wisconsin. Now, I'm curious about this because I know you have people from that area. So for the sake of just context, do you have any insights into Wisconsin or Wisconsin life? Not Madison area. No, my experience was further away in the west side of the state in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is where Bonnever is from. And I spent a lot of time there and I really loved it. Who? Bonnever. Oh, okay. Right. You know, he had a, he's the guy who, who plays the guitar and you not Bon Iver. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yes. I don't listen to him. So I only see his name in print. So I always mispronounce it in my head. Sorry. Okay. My bad. He kept Ellie asleep for years. Now, every time I hear his music though, I get incredibly tired. (laughs) Excellent. But he would be the music that Ellie would go to sleep to every night. Okay. And he has one of my favorite SNL sketches is Justin Timberlake playing Bonnever, and he goes to Beyonce's house to play for Blue Ivy. And when he's singing, they can't understand what he's saying. And he just, they're like, did he just sing something about a muggle? <laughs> and while he's singing, he falls asleep. Maya Rudolph is playing Beyonce, and she's like, oh, look, Bonnever sung himself to sleep. Okay. It's good stuff, man. Sounds like it. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah, I recommend it. Uh, but if you want a better one, you should see Rihanna's Shy Ronnie series with Andy Samberg. So once again, you're saying Rihanna's better than Beyonce. Once again. So Garbage's album Garbage from 1995. Released August 15th, 95 on Alamo Sounds. An eponymous album. They were a studio-created band. Well, they were a band that was created by guys who owned a studio. And they credit themselves Correct. as having formed in 1993. 
The album itself was recorded from April of 94 to May of 95 at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. The members of Garbage were Shirley Manson on vocals, Duke Erickson, electric guitar, bass, keyboards, Steve Marker, acoustic and electric guitar, loops, samples, and Butch Vig on drums, loops, sound processing, and production. Garbage is an interesting band in the way it was formed. And before we can talk garbage, I think we need to go back about a decade into the, I don't want to say lesser known, but when people think of garbage, they obviously think of Shirley Manson, right? I mean, I always did. She's the voice of... As a massive Pumpkins fan, I've been in love with Butch since I was like 14. Yeah. So I was very familiar with him and excited when I heard that he was starting a band, so... So I always attribute it with him as much as I do Shirley. Okay, well, that's fair. I don't think I knew who Butch was back in the 90s. I liked the music and the band members. I didn't really follow the production side too terribly much. These guys got together back in the 80s. Duke Erickson and Butch Vig were in a band called Spooner and then Firetown. And when they got to Firetown, Steve Marker joined as their sound engineer. After playing for a while, they bought Smart Studios and set up shop in Madison, Wisconsin, and got some pretty big hits. They produced Gish and Siamese Dream, Nirvana's Nevermind, and Insecticide, which is uh, an interesting story when I looked at why they ditched Butch Vig for Steve Albany. Did you read all about that, Mark? I didn't read as to why they specifically ditched Butch, but I did enjoy the follow-up story as to how unhappy they were were with Steve and the work he had initially done on In Utero. They were. They were very unhappy. Well, Butch said at the time Nirvana was trying to be this raw punk band, but Nevermind was so polished and well-received. He said, you know, you can't really be a punk rocker who's who's railing against the world and sell 20 million records. Right. He said, I think that's one of the reasons they wanted to work with Steve Albany and make a record. Is it Albany or Albini? Albini, sorry. I think it's one of the reasons they wanted to work with Steve Albini and make a raw, simpler-sounding record when they did In Utero. But when we first finished Nevermind, before it came out, they loved it. I mean, Kurt called me several times saying, oh, God, I can't believe how great this record sounds. And then you have to disown it because of its success, which is one of the things that Butch is known for. The albums that he does sound easily marketable, which is why Dave Grohl went back to him with Foo Fighters later, right? They wanted that sound. They wanted something that sounded polished and record-ready, so they went back to butch vig he had done a lot of just terrible terrible bands local recordings prior to getting the nirvana name behind him that he just picked up so much studio knowledge so looking at a little bit more that they did they did everclear sparkle and fade house of pains shamrocks and shenanigans do you know much about house of pain i know i never cared for them they had one fairly successful single in the 90s Danny Boy O'Connor lives in Tulsa now and owns the house from the movie The Outsiders. Okay. That's a museum? Anyway. Do you know who owned the mixing console that they used in Smart Studios prior to being acquired by Butch and the Boys? I did not. The mixing console that they used in Smart Studios was previously owned by the Osmond family. Like Donnie and Marie? Yes. And for the duration that they used it in Smart Studios... It still had an Osman sticker on the back. <laughs> they did Sonic Youth, Dirty, and Sonic Youth, Experimental Jet Set, Trash, and No Star. They did Helmet's 94 album, Betty. And then at this point, we're at 95, and out comes Garbage's first album. And the next three albums he does are all garbage. Right. And a lot of that was working with those bands and especially with Nirvana having the kind of success that Nirvana had. He got so many people coming to him wanting to work with with their mediocre band to try to make them sound like Nirvana that he just kind of got sick of production and needed a break. And the guys had wanted to start a band together for a while and they just had such a load with the studio that they didn't have the time. And they found that they were successful enough that they could set their own schedule and so they finally decided to say, screw it. Let's start this band we've been talking about. And so they started Garbage as a break from production. You know how they got their name Garbage, right, Mark? How did they get their name, Tom? They were sitting around playing, and they, they recorded some music, and they were listening to it, and Butch Vig said, this all sounds like garbage, and they decided to run with that name. Huh. At a point around 2003, Garbage kind of decided they needed a break and went on hiatus, so Butch got back into production, and he produced a handful of other albums that I love that I didn't realize that he had produced, like AFI Sing the Sorrow, Against Me's New Wave. Um, I know that there were a couple that you were surprised by. 
Yeah, he did Jimmy World, Chase This Light, Green Day's 21 Century Breakdown. He did a Goo Goo Dolls. He did Silver Sun Pickups. He did. And he also did the single for a song called Neutron Star Collision, parentheses, Love is Forever, by, as Tom so aptly referred to them, the Twilight Band Muse. Muse. <laughs> which, of course, was recorded I've... for the soundtrack of the Twilight Saga installment, Eclipse. And there you go. You thought we were done talking about Muse. They also did, in their, in their studio, they did a few Rainer Maria albums, the first Hawthorne Heights album, Death Cab for Cutie's Plans and Narrow Stairs. They did Tegan and Sarah's The Con and Green Day's 21st Century Breakdown. And like I said, Foo Fighters came back for a couple of albums to work with Butch Vig. Now, do you know what Butch's real name is? What is Butch's real name, Mark? Butch's real name is Brian David Vig, but he acquired the nickname Butch as a child due to a severe crew cut his father gave him. <laughs> Ouch. Yep. The first instrument he learned how to play was the piano. He played for nice. he played that for six years, but then after seeing The Who on an episode of The Smothers Brothers, he switched to drums. He's pretty impressive. He's listed by NME as one of the 50 greatest music producers of all times. He's on my top five list. Obviously with Gish and Siamese Dream alone, right? Yep. I honestly think Chase This Light is an underappreciated album by Jimmy World. For me, it usually comes down between him and Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin did Def Jam, right? Yes. But then he started American Recordings and also he was single-handedly responsible for the Johnny Cash resurgence. Oh, nice. Okay. I just think of him back in the early days, I guess, with like Beastie Boys and Run DMC. Yeah. Which is weird to go from Beastie Boys to... Johnny Cash? Yeah. To be able to produce music that varied is pretty darn impressive. I think Rick has a larger body of work at this point, but he didn't take 10 years off to have a platinum-selling band of his own. So, like I said, it's, it's a toss-up between the two for the number one spot. Both solid. As a younger gentleman, Butch studied at the University of Wisconsin. He got into electronic music production, and he contributed several electronic music soundtrack pieces to low-budget films, including one song to the cult hit Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> Talk about a B-rate horror. And it was there as a student where Butch met Steve Marker. Now, Steve started playing drums. When he was six, his parents bought him a kit. And at 12, he made the switch to guitar. But Duke, like Butch, his first instrument was piano. Yeah. And then like Steve, his second was guitar. Nice. So they all cover multiple bases and they're all musicians from young ages. Steve Marker's got some cool stuff under his belt, too. He does. Outside of the music industry. Well, he has his own company that does film stuff. Yeah. He had attended the University of Wisconsin pursuing a film degree, but he also had a, a growing interest in audio production. And again, it was there where, you know, he met Butch. Butch had a few microphones, so Steve bought a four-track reel, and they set it up in Marker's basement, and that was where they initially started working together before they were able to find an actual legitimate studio space. They just worked out of Marker's basement, and it was there that they would record the Spooner records, which Butch played drums for and, you know, was Duke's band. Yeah, Erickson was the lead singer. He was the vocalist for Spooner. He played keyboards and guitar, and he was the principal songwriter for the band. They never got big. They did get a little notoriety with Spooner. They got some shout-outs from, from Rolling Stone. But once they started um, Smart Studio, they had, a, they had a shift and started the garage rock band Firetown. Did that take off? No, it did not. They got, again, Rolling Stone praised them for having a striking, thoughtful album with killer harmonies. But uh, nothing terribly big ever happened for them. So they started working together. to come. They wanted to come up with another band. So as we previously mentioned, the success of Nevermind and the other records that had made Smart Studios an in-demand studio was also burnt Butch out on production. Uh, he did an interview in, in 2001 where he says, part of the reason I started Garbage was by the time I'd done Nevermind, I'd recorded a thousand bands that were just guitar, bass, and drums. I was reading about all these other records that I was getting excited for, like Public Enemy using the samplers in the studio, and I just decided I wanted to do a bit of a U-turn. And so for Smart Studios, part of that U-turn was stepping away from production. And initially, they had started doing remixing for bands like U2, Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, and House of Pain. And in that process of breaking songs down and finding different instrumentations and new hooks and different ways to put the songs together, that's really where the guys found what they wanted the approach for their band to be. But as they started recording and doing things, they felt they were lacking something right 
Well, there were three guys who had spent their entire career working with dude bands, and they made a conscious decision that they really wanted to work with a female to mix things up, and then also just to help give like a female perspective getting into some damn feminism is what it sounds like you have three guys in a band who also happen to own the studio so there's no limits or direction only this desire to experiment and get weird right and they wanted to get weird um but given their backgrounds like i said working with just dudes at some point they also agreed that i don't know how being weird translate to female vocalist but somehow they decided they needed female vocals well i think it goes back to the quote that we have from butch where he said on the demos we had we tended to distort our vocals and sing them really aggressively and that wasn't really at the end of the day that that was just them doing what they were doing before and not what they were wanting to go for and so they they were looking for that that lead vocalist right. enter who enter shirley who manson So Spin called Shirley Manson a soulless Courtney Love clone, which I find baffling because I have never thought of Courtney Love as having a soul. (laughs) But where was Shirley born and raised? Edinburgh. Scotland. She's a Scots person. Yep, she was born in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. The home of William Wallace and a giant statue to his memory. Hmm. Her mother was also a singer, and she sang in a big band. Shirley was named after an aunt who was named after the novel Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Okay. Do you know what Shirley's history of instrument playing is? I do not. In school, she received instruction for the recorder, the clarinet, and the fiddle. Of course she learned the fiddle. However, she was rejected by the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, so she became a rebellious teen. She started hanging out with rebellious teens because she was getting bullied and picked on, and this led to her introduction to cannabis. Hmm. I did not know that. There's so much to learn on our podcast, Mark. Even we learn. There is. We are constantly learning. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that she had a job at a chain store of some local high fashion brand where she was hired as the shop's makeup counter girl. But she was quickly moved to a glamorous career in the stockroom because of her attitude towards customers. (laughs) And it's at learning this that Shirley Manson has officially become my hero. That's really funny. Yep. And of course, that's what's going to endear her to your heart, Mark. I mean, yeah, she was in this fairly successful band, but telling off customers at the makeup counter, getting demoted to stockroom, that's something that anyone with customer service history should relate to. And she used free samples of the products from the store to become the stylist for a handful of local bands, and that was how she transitioned kind of into the music scene. Do you know the name of the first band that she sang for? I do. It was before Angelfish. Uh, Goodbye, Mr. McKenzie. She was, but her first gig fronting a band was a short-lived act known as the Wild Indians. And it was with that band where she was approached by the singer of Goodbye McKenzie to join because he wanted to do her. Did he actually tell her that, or are you inferring that in between the lines? No, that's how she tells the story. And that's the cleaned-up version for the kids at home. That's the, that's the, we're going to keep our G rating on Apple. Since you keep telling me that this is supposed to be family friendly, so what? I just don't want to get listed as explicit content and have nobody listen to us. How are we ever going to cover rage? <laughs> that's a problem for future Tom and future Mark to figure out. So goodbye, McKenzie. They got shuffled around and eventually dropped by their label. So her and a few of the other band members front dude aside, they started this project called Angelfish. And Angelfish was successful enough to have one video played on MTV once. And just so happened to be seen by Steve Marker. Yes. That's serendipity. Yeah. And he taped it. So I don't know if it's something where like it was just a program that he would tape regularly. The 90s were weird with taping things. How you would accidentally find something on your tape that you didn't intend to tape? Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. So he took the tape and he showed it to Butch and he showed it to Duke and they were all sold that she could be the one. As they described it, we wanted to work with a female vocalist who didn't have a high, chirpy, girly quality to her voice. This is Marker talking. To me, Shirley had a darkness and a depth to her that you don't get out of many bands that are around right now. It really, really struck me the first time I heard her. And that was something that Butch has echoed in other interviews. They, they all kind of talk about how there was, by no means was there a shortage of female-fronted bands, but it was all, being the 90s, the loud, aggressive, in-your-face female And so Butch had their people reach out to her people. That's kind of how we started. I had my people reach out to your people. No, I yelled in your face and you yelled back. Or did you yell first? Oh, I meant for this podcast. Oh, for the podcast. 
Yeah, no, we didn't have people back then. We weren't we weren't as highfalutin as we, we are now. We still don't have people. Mark, I'm trying to make us sound fancier than we are. Just go with it. Anyway. So Butch had their people reach out to her people. This is where you say, in turn, her people reach out to her while she was doing the dishes. She got a phone call at home. She said it was like 7 o'clock at night, and she was working on dishes. She said when she received the phone call, she actually had rubber gloves on at the time. Her A&R guy said, there's this producer in America who's been inquiring about you. And she did not know who Butch was. She asked, and they say, you might have an album at home. Go check out this little known album called Nevermind by Nirvana. Go look at the production notes on this album. She looks at the albums, and it was records that her representative knew that she had and loved. And and they set up a meeting. So the guys fly from Wisconsin to meet with Shirley in London. An unfortunate side note is that the day that they met in London to kind of get to know each other was the day that Cobain's death was announced. Now, she was interested, and she told him as much, but she had a prior obligation with Angelfish. And what was that obligation? They were touring with Live. Yep. Opening up for Live. It was on that tour with Live. The boys drove to Chicago to see Angelfish, and then they had a day or two off from tour where they went back to Madison for an audition. How did the audition go? Not so great. They describe it as a spectacular failure. Yep, not so great. To their credit, the guys take credit for the fact that it was a terrible audition. They don't put it on Shirley. They were not organized. Right. The chemistry is there, but... They hadn't really got their stuff together. Which means, obviously, they didn't put it on Shirley because they give her another shot. If it had been something she had done, I don't think they would have, you know, they wouldn't have brought her back. Yeah. As they tell the story, they were still kind of set up in Marker's basement. Or at least the vocal booth was. And so she was downstairs in this basement. They had these tracks that had more or less ideas of music and only fragmented lyrics. And were like, here's this song. You haven't heard it before, but sing it. Let's see what you do. And she's some little Scottish girl in some random dude's basement in Wisconsin. And so, yeah, it didn't go well. (laughs) That sounds like my dream scenario for how I find my stardom. Being a Scottish Uh, (laughs) girl in a man's basement in Wisconsin. I'm I'm sure the internet has a cam for that. I don't want to know what's on it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it, Mark. I'm not going to Google it. There was an interview that Shirley gave to the LA Times in 95 where she said she wasn't immediately sold on the idea of joining the band, featuring someone with industry connections and the stellar credentials of Vig. She says, I come from a background of what I call working bands. That means we basically travel around doing crummy gigs. There's a certain snobbishness that exists among bands like that, where producer becomes an ugly word. So when I joined this band, my attitude towards the other members was, you don't know everything... But once I started working with them, I quickly realized that not only were they actual musicians with profound knowledge of the studio, but they were also passionate about what they wanted to do musically, even persnickety about what sound they wanted to make. So they have this terrible audition. Angelfish finishes the tour with Live, and it was successful enough that upon completion, they break up. And so at this point, they have a second go-round of auditioning, and it goes smoother, and things start to fall in place. Butch talking about Shirley says we wanted someone who could sing in an understated way. And at the moment, a lot of these alternative rock singers have a tendency to scream. Shirley's just the opposite. By using understatement, she can sound even more subversive. She has a lot of darkness in her that we immediately liked. Yeah, speaking of Butch Figby talks about when Shirley sings, there's sort of a languid undercurrent in there. Mm -hmm. There's a tension in it. When she started singing, it was really understated. In fact, sometimes the more understated she sang, the more tense the track sounded. That's one thing we really loved that she brought to those early versions of the songs. Mm -hmm. Shirley, however, says, I have a very strange voice. More than being a great musician, (laughs) I think I'm good at being in bands. I work well with bands. And to that point, even though the boys had you know, tried to write these songs from the female perspective, once they realized that Shirley was coming in, they turned it all over to her. And again, from that 95 interview with the LA Times, she says, by the time I joined the band, they had these little sketches of songs, but nothing was finished. And some of the ideas for lyrics I found unsuitable. Others I liked and worked on them with them. And I always went to bat for what I believed in. And so at this point, garbage has literally found its voice. Figuratively, there's still a ways away. There's a lot of trial and error left and a lot of happy accidents to figure out how all the members work together, what roles they do, and how the songs take complete shape. Now, do you know how Garbage got its name? 
No, how did garbage get its name? Butch Vig, in a 1994 interview that was pre-release of the album, he said, This friend came to the studio to play some percussion on a remix of a Nine Inch Nails track, and when he saw all the loops I had going around the desk, he said, Man, this crap looks like garbage to me. Do you know what you're doing? So I said, I'm not sure, but we're going to turn this garbage into songs at some point. We kind of like the name because it could just blend all sorts of trash and stuff together. Talking further about the creative process in an interview with Sound on Sound, Butch said a lot of the times we didn't know what we were doing. It's like trial and error and a lot of error. I mean, we never really sit down and say, hey, here's a plan, let's do this. We really do experiment a lot, and it's difficult because we're a dysfunctional democracy. All of us have opinions, and everyone has an ultimate power of veto. If someone hates something, then we'll discuss why. The good thing is there's a certain sensibility the four of us share, so when something really connects with one person, it's usually going to connect with all four of us. So... The way that they worked, everyone brought something to the table, and they would just jam on different ideas until somebody felt that there was like a hook they could use or a line they really liked. And in a handful of interviews, they talk about how frequently what they ended up with was nowhere near what they started with. But about a year later, they had an album. Yep, they did. They released their first album. Before releasing the album, they started shopping it around to labels, as you would do in the day. But they did a weird thing when they sent out their one sheet. They buried the lead, man. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, one sheet is literally that. It's just one piece of paper. It usually has like a band promotional photo and a bio and then a nice little short write-up about whatever you think that people should know about the band, the album, whatever. And it's attached with a physical copy of the album and sent out to press and to radio stations and to whoever else is relevant. And on the one sheet, they intentionally left off the names of the members of the band and did not include a photo because they didn't want garbage blowing up because of butch they wanted people to take the band on its own merit it's a big risk it is when you have a name like butch vig at this time this is a big big risk yeah but having a name like butch it it's a double-edged sword it is because people are gonna have certain expectations along with him right right and a lot of the reviews that came out were like, surprisingly, Butch Vig, who a lot of people attribute as starting grunge because he did Nevermind. Right. They're like, you have expectations when you hear that Butch Vig has a band and this doesn't meet any of them. I think that's kind of why they did what they did early on, at least on that initial round of trying to get hype for the band. It makes sense because I think had they put Butch Vig, everybody would have been expecting grunge. Mm -hmm. And when they heard the opening track of Super Vixen, probably would have turned off. Yeah. Shirley kind of addressed it in an interview in 96. This is after the album came out, but she said, like, there was pressure. We knew we had to make a good album. We wouldn't get a second chance at it. If we came out with below average we'd have been crucified, so it had to be good, right. and we were crapping ourselves making it. Gross. Probably not literally. Oh, okay, okay. I, I was getting a mental image of them around the mixer listening. I guess it all depends. Well played. It's one of my favorite Blink-182 skits. <laughs> it's interesting with what they put together musically at this point. They were obviously trying to experiment a lot, because mm -hmm. this was 95. you got to think grunge is at its heyday. This wasn't the obvious choice to go with, especially with the experience that they had as music producers. Yeah, right. It was a bold choice of sound. There was an interview Butch gave. He talks about, I grew up listening to everything from pop radio and opera to country music and polka, so I really thought that garbage would be an interesting and eclectic thing to do. It wasn't that I wanted to make some kind of statement. I just wanted to have fun in the studio and collaborate with Stephen Duke. That's awesome. Yeah, and so they did, and for the most part, it was very well received. Yeah. There's a handful of little little snippet of reviews that I enjoyed. First one, the Garbage album released last month is being greeted with critical praise and for good reason. What the group has recorded, considering Vig's pedigree, is a surprisingly non-guitar rock mix of ambient noise, shifting trip-hop beats, grinding jungle rhythms, and an ocean-sized chunk of buzzing noise that somehow gels, thanks to catchy hooks and killer song construction. Another little breakdown that I threw in here, just for your sake. Part of Garbage's charm is their unapologetic goth streak that achieves Dravenian levels of gothitude. Because tracks like As Heaven Is Wide and A Stroke of Luck straight up feel like something off the Crow's soundtrack. I like that term, Dravenian. That's really funny, although it is pretty pedantic. You loved the Crow and you know it. I do love the Crow. I mean, the way they worded it sounded very... It insisted upon itself. Fun fact. Yeah. Butch did produce a helmet song, Milk Toast, that appeared on the Crow soundtrack. Nice. Nice. 
Another quote about this album when it when it came out from Los Angeles Times writer Alyssa Gardner, who said one of Garbage's most compelling features is a force of nature, Manson's voice, which can convey a multitude of emotions without ever coming across as melodramatic. That's a good quote. Everything they do with the music is really it really is background to what Shirley Manson does vocally in 2010 for the 15 year anniversary bbc review ends by saying that manson's career defining performance is as electrifying as it was 15 years ago so there's a lot to be said about the band and about her one final thing about the band as a whole and this is my favorite synopsis of the album the sound of garbage is akin to a jackson pollock painting thick layers (laughs) upon layers of sound that have been stripped down torn apart pasted together and then stripped again until the result is a dizzying soundscape that reveals fresh nuances upon repeated listenings it's the sound of portis heads bus smashing into Susie Sue's limousine and starting a chain reaction accident involving everybody from Roxy Music to Echo and the Bunnymen with Trent Reznor ending up in the hospital after falling off of his scooter. Huh. I think that's about the best wrap up you can give because I think all of those references are apt. That's a lot to take in. Kudos on getting it all out. Thank you. Before we jump in, how would you describe if you were to tell somebody about this album, how would you describe it musically? I would probably point them to that quote, because again, I think the references it gives, Portishead, Susie Sue, Trent, Reznor, there's elements of all of these things at play. And then comparing those sounds all mixed together and likening it to a Jackson Pollock painting is probably the easiest, most concise way to talk about the music, Yeah, just because of how layered and nuanced it is. It's just such a weird amalgamation of musical styles, though. Like, you've got, like, the electronica. You can hear some prodigy in there. It's got the trip hop. You mentioned in here Portishead, and that's one of the biggest bands I can connect yeah. it to. There's plenty of other inspirations that they've some cited. Some punk There was one interview, the interview that Butch gave for Sound on Sound, which a lot of the interview is more focused on the technical production side of things. But he just talks about how the sampler is probably the thing that has changed music more than anything else during the past five years. It's became so commonplace in what hip-hop and rap were doing that everybody was using it, but nobody in rock was doing anything with it. Rock was still all about producing a live band experience. You have live drums, you have live guitar, you have these things doing these things all at the same time. And to take the sampler, to take so many things and break them apart and put them back together with the sensibilities of the remix, it was kind of revolutionary for a quote-unquote rock band to do. It was. It was definitely different than anything anybody else was was putting out. With regards to all of the different things that Garbage were doing in the studio trying to make this album, it's something that Butch addresses when he tells about how the band got its name. And in the autobiography of the band, This Is The Noise That Keeps Me Awake, Vig wrote in his 93 studio journal about the creative process of working for long periods of time, quote unquote, without coming up with anything cool. And when you least expect it, it all falls into place. And the name of the band derives itself from the last line of the entry, which is, I hope all this garbage will become something beautiful. Well, that's a neat origin story for the name of the band. Yeah. Now we know where garbage came from. Yep. And I think they did achieve something beautiful frequently throughout this album. Oh, for sure. But again, a lot of it was trial and error and happy accidents. And I think that can bring us to the very first track. Super Vixen. Super Vixen. It starts with all these stutters and stops and was totally an accident. How so? As the band tells it, we were working on some guitar part at the start of the song, and we put the tape machine into a loop. You know, pick up, rewind, play again. And after a while, the tape was parking. And again, we thought, that's kind of cool. So we decided to do that every time, but because a lot of things played through those pauses, we had to do some extensive muting with the automation and the mix in order to get them super tight. So basically, it goes to dead air. And in a way, it's just silence, but that also becomes a hook. However, a lot of people commented that they thought their CD players were broken when they first put it on, which is very cool. (laughs) So just the process of trying to stack it up and repeat and repeat and repeat, it was just kind of like breaking down and creating this weird thing that people thought broke their CD players. Did this song resonate well with you? It did. I enjoyed this one. Cool. How about you? 
Uh, it was middle of the road for me. I okay. didn't love it, didn't hate it. Okay. I don't know if, that I hated anything on the album. No, I, I didn't. I wouldn't say there was anything I would I mean, there not was certainly to if it came on the radio. There were certainly the radio singles that I was familiar with, but I think part of wanting to pick this album was it was one that, you know, we knew the singles. Obviously, it was successful enough, but I had never sat down and listened to the whole album. And so I kind of wanted to do this one as an excuse to finally give it a full listen and then just power through the singles that I already knew. It was kind of a fun experience to hear a very familiar sounding band, but hearing new old music, old new music. Yeah, old music that's new to you. Right. You're like re-gifting music. Right. Whereas track two was just something that I was familiar with already. Because I was kind of surprised by this one. Queer was released on August 14th, 1995, and it never hit the Billboard charts. It was the third single from the album. It hit number 57 on the Radio Songs chart, but it never hit the Billboard. And I remember this song being everywhere it's one of the three songs that played well off of this album the inspiration for queer came from brotherly love which was a novel by peter dexter it's about a woman who was hired to go and make this guy's son a man the story of the novel beyond that followed two boys caught up in philadelphia mob life and that inspired vig to write from the perspective of the prostitute observing an odd emotionally scarred boy so a lot of the lyrical content then isn't necessarily about what it sounds like or as manson explained it's not as you might think to do with being gay but tolerance no it's not at all there are some disturbing lines in here though like uh this is what he pays me for i'll show you how it's done you learn to love the pain you feel like father like son knowing you know the context behind this is a little disturbing so Garbage did not write the song particularly to appeal to the gay community. However, it has resonated. Erickson stated, as musicians, we're totally open to the song's gay appeal. There's been enough exposure to gay issues in the mainstream media that people are finally ready to deal with it, even if it's something controversial. People are still beginning to open up to it. The song isn't about sex at all. It's about the loss of innocence. <laughs> it just takes a blunt approach to the Very loss of innocence. blunt approach. Next up is the second international released single, Only Happy When It Rains, released on September 18th, 1995. This song is really an interesting song and has gotten a lot of attention from other bands as well. Mm -hmm. And in pop culture, there's an interesting cover of it by Metallica. It was uh, featured in Homicide, Life on the Streets, an episode of The X-Files, and the 2019 movie Captain Marvel. Steve Marker explains that the song's bleak lyrics are a mockery of the angsty, quote, wearing your heart on the sleeve thing, unquote prevalent in the 90s alternative rock songs as well as a self-deprecating reference to garbage's own dark lyrics manson agrees with that shirley says it's a dig at ourselves because we like records that don't make us feel very happy Mm -hmm. and at this so-called quote alternative scene of we're so weird and more wonderful than everybody else she goes on to say only happy when it rains is about wanting love but knowing life will always get in the way yet not being obliterated by that it's a song for people that know what it's like to live on the dark side it's about devotion but a different kind a devotion to the truth and to freedom and to hell with the consequences now this song also features a Additional music contributions from Mike Kishow on bass and additional percussion by Polly Ryan. Okay, then. In addition to Metallica, it's been covered by a bunch of other artists. I think my favorite version is from Richard Cheese because he is wonderful. I haven't heard that one. I'll have to listen to it after this. But this song is something that gets referenced a lot from people from our generation. Mm-hmm. It feels like it would belong on the Crow soundtrack. <laughs> Uh, where I imagine Shirley Manson singing this and then Brandon Lee just saying, it can't rain all the time. You just want to put the song on when you're banging away on Darla? Christine was telling me about one of Ellie's classes she's in and she said the girl's name and I said, what's her name? And she said, Darla. She looked at me and we both started to giggle and then I said, this is not funny. This girl's in first grade. (laughs) Uh, That poor girl doesn't have a chance. No. But this song fire it up this song we still hear on the radio it's still played regularly it held up well it did and it was one that a lot of people whether they understood the joke or not latched onto in order to make the high school connection for this album i remember this is one that my first real high school girlfriend this was her favorite song and the first time i ever got hot and heavy with a girl was to garbage <laughs> yeah so good times anyway Next up was a song I hadn't heard before. This was my first time hearing As Heaven is Wide. And boy, is this a Catholic angsty song. (laughs) 
This was another one that in that Sound on Sound interview, Butch used as an example of further explaining the band's creative process and how they worked and how a song could change over time. Because originally this track, which has a fairly strong kind of club vibe to it, was originally recorded kind of as a rock song, had blaring guitars, heavy fuzz bass, and big pounding drums. Surely when the she came in, after she finished amending the lyrics, she laid down her vocal track. And at that point, they agreed that the song still needed something else. It wasn't quite where it needed to be. But nobody knew what exactly that extra something should be, so they shelved the song for a few weeks. At which point, as Butch tells it, one day we came into the studio and Steve got these icy, chattery techno loops going, and slowly but surely we just got rid of all of the live drums and guitars, and the track took on this kind of cold, menacing club vibe. Sort of a punk techno thing, I guess. The only thing that remained from the original tracking was the fuzz bass, and then we went back, we triple-tracked that, and then we double-tracked the low bass, and so everything's slightly out of sync, and that gives it the strange flangey effect. And we kept putting more stuff on, and the only time the guitar appears is at the end, when you hear Steve slide into the song... Yet one of the most surprising and interesting things about this whole process was that even though Shirley had sung over the original rock track, her vocals now sounded way cooler against the new instrumentation, and we didn't change the vocals at all. But suddenly, they took on this whole different persona when we just changed the music underneath. It was interesting. For some reason, this song felt like it took forever to get started. I mean, it's only 31 seconds of this industrial electric rock Mm -hmm. before she started. But for some reason, it just felt like a long time. Not in a bad way. It just felt like I went back and and rewound it to see where the time was because I felt like it had been a minute or two for some reason. But there's a... Quote from Rolling Stone's 95 review of the album. As Heaven is Wide writes, cool grooves, high in focus and fiber, locomoting towards unknown dance floor destinations. And I have no idea what exactly that's supposed to mean. I don't understand that at all. But I don't know what else is really happening with the song, so why not? That's not my idea of how how I'd describe it. Lyrically, though, I really... There was one line that stood out to me in this one. If flesh could crawl, my skin would fall from off my bones and run away from here. I think that's very strong imagery, and now that I'm reading it out loud, I really want to hear Saves the Day cover this. (laughs) I can see that. I dig it. I'm trying to lead you into a bad segue. I already gave you one earlier. Did you? I guess I should pay attention to you sometimes. (laughs) Nah, I don't know why you would. Nobody else does. Aww. Next up is Not My Idea. It's not my idea of my favorite song from this album. One review I found for this said Not My Idea embodies the band's experimental playfulness without losing their sense of melody, which I think is a much more understandable snippet. Yeah. But I think like Super Vixen, this one shows a bit more of everyone in the band's rock roots and their tendencies towards that while still not quite being a straightforward traditional rock band. And I think that fits perfectly with the lyrics because the song is more or less about subverting expectations. Yeah, it still brings the angst, though, even in it. Certainly. This is the one about burning down the house, right? Yes. Honestly, I think this is my favorite line of the whole album. You thought I was a little girl. You thought I was a little mouse. You thought you'd take me by surprise. Now I'm here burning Burning down down your house. house. (laughs) It's a stroke of luck that Manson managed to find the uh, angsty goth approach to those lyrics. You have me doing it, too, and I hate myself. You're welcome. Track six, A Stroke of Luck. I don't have a lot to say about this one. It sounds very, it sounds like garbage. Nothing really stuck out as that special for me. Again, we deal a lot with the religious themes that we see playing throughout the album. Talking about, is this good luck or a stroke of luck or is this... A stroke of luck or a gift from God, the hand of fate or or devil's claws. From below or saints above, you come to me, here comes the cold again. I feel it closing in. It's fallen down and all around me falling. Yeah. Now... I will disagree with you slightly on this. While obviously everything on this album sounds like a garbage song, this one, musically, it sounds like Shirley has stepped in, tied up Dave Gone, thrown him in a closet, and has taken over vocal duties from Ultra Era Depeche Mode. (laughs) The tone and the beat and something about the song just really just resonates ultra to me. The music does sound Depeche Mode-y. I can hear that. Yep. Moving on to the very first single release. Track 7. The song Val. This was released on March 20th, 1995, and barely squeaked into the Billboard Top 100 at number 97 on the U.S. charts. 
I find it interesting that this is the first single they went with. So Garbage never intended to release this as their first single at all. Before the album had come out, their British manager called and said they had a chance to submit a song for this CD compilation. The only catch was they had to have it ready within three days. And it was the only thing that they pretty much had done or in a position to be done within the deadline. They sent it out and before they knew it, British Radio picked it up. And within a couple of months of that, K-Rock, which is the, the big rock station in L.A., and a handful of other modern rock stations in Seattle and across the U.S. had picked it up as well. And the band didn't necessarily want Vow to be their first single, or a single at all. It just happened by accident. Part of them not wanting that is they didn't really think that that song represented the sound that they were going for. In an interview talking about this, they say, Like those unfortunate masses who were suckered into Beck's excellent debut thinking they would get a dozen loser retreads. Anyone who picks up garbage expecting 12 Arturna guitar hits with chick vocals would be disappointed. Vow is surely the exception on the record. The only hint that one of the members is known more for cock rock than club hits. That's a harsh thing, man. However, Manson did say after the fact that I think it was actually quite fortunate that Val was the first single because had we done one of the more clubby tunes, we would have been pigeonholed as a stance band. And that's a hard tag to shake. Now we can do whatever and people won't know what to expect from us. <laughs> so it wasn't meant to be anything and people liked it. It blew up. It's a nice accident to have, isn't it? Yeah. In addition to happy accidents while producing the songs, there's happy accidents in promoting the band. Nice. Bob Ross would love these guys. The song itself, Butch said the idea came from a newspaper article that I read about a woman who had gone back to get revenge on an abusive husband. So we thought it would be cool to get a bit of retribution in there. And so they kind of tell that story from her perspective. Very interesting. I cannot think of a positive way to segue to Stupid Girl. That's fine. So we'll just go with Stupid Girl. Song 8, our fourth single, released the following year in January of 1996. Hit number 26 on the billboards. And this song is the only one on the album where Garbage share songwriting credits. The attribution for the credits go to Garbage, Joe Strummer, and Mick Jones. And if you don't know who Joe and Mick are, they were two members of the only band that matters, The Clash. And they get credit since the musical arrangement for Stupid Girl is built around a drum sample and the bass line from The Clash's 1980 hit, Train in Vain. This is the song that garnered them two Grammy nominations. It's seen as an anthem for a girl who won't settle for less than what she wants. Shirley Manson said that Stupid Girl is really about squandering potential. It's our version of Madonna's Express Yourselves, but a little more subversive. You are correct. It was nominated for two Grammy Awards, also Best Rock Song, Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group, as well as a Danish Grammy for Best Rock Song, and an MTV Video Music Award for Best New Artist, plus an MTV Europe Award for Best Song. I think the important question is here is, did they win the Dutch Grammy? I don't know. So we are now on to track nine, Dog New Tricks. This one was another kind of heavy guitar-driven song with a solid pulsating beat and jaded lyrics. So it was a very garbage-sounding song. <laughs> and that sneaks into my notes on Dog New Tricks. I don't have anything at all to add. Track 10. My Lover's Box. Researching this came across a lot of interviews, a lot of quotes, a lot of articles, and possibly the best quote I found in all of my research for this album is in regards to this song. Okay, what'd you find? The song as a whole makes it sound like Manson's idea of love is dismembering her paramour and keeping them in a box under her bed. It's brutal and a little confusing, but fairly on brand for a band from Wisconsin. This is the home of Dahmer and Gain, after all. It's heartwarming to see how quickly our favorite Scott fit in. That's why I read the reviews. Well... I will tell you, this is where I'm going to bring in our sponsor, songmeaning.com. And I want to read Lady Boy Girl comment from August 29, 2003, where they said, This is a really simplistic personal interpretation, but when I was dumped by the first person I loved, I listened to this song over and over. I didn't think I'd ever be happy again, so I wanted someone to send me an angel so I could feel okay. Well, if they want someone to send them an angel, then they should be listening to real life. And I think they just really want somebody to fix them now, which is our second to last song we'll be covering for this album proper, mm -hmm. song number 10. This is song number 11. That's what I just said. So the day that Chris Cornell's death was announced, 
Shirley and Butch happened to be in Yahoo Music's studio for an interview on Garbage's career, during which Shirley shared the following anecdote. We were writing a lot in Madison, and I was obsessed with Chris Cornell. Like, obsessed by him. It was around the time of Black Hole Sun, and I used to watch him on MTV, and we ended up trying to write lyrics for Fix Me Now, which started off being called Chris Cornell. However... Butch added that they had an early mix of the song where Manson was singing Chris Cornell's name in the song. And looking at the lyrics, I think, was probably during the chorus in the call and response portion where it currently says, fix me now, I wish you would. And then the response is, fix me now. Bring me back to life, fix me now. Kiss me blind, somebody should, fix me now. So I think it was probably that echoed Fix Me Now was previously just Chris Cornell. I could be mistaken, but just looking at the lyrics, that's my guess of where it would go. No, that makes sense. Looking at them right now and trying to figure that out, and that's the only place it seems to make sense where she would sing Chris Cornell. Fix me now, I wish you would. Chris Cornell, bring me back to life. Chris Cornell, kiss me blind, somebody should. Chris Cornell. So, track 11, Fix Me Now, originally was called Chris Cornell. Interesting. Next up is the final song. Track 12, Milk, which in addition to the final song for the album was the fifth and final single from the album. It was released October 7th, 1996, and it debuted at number 10 on the UK singles chart. It outsold Stupid Girl, which is interesting because nobody really remembers this song. It's not played anywhere. Yeah, I don't remember getting the radio play. But going through the album, I'm not surprised because this was the one that stood out to me the most. And after listening to the song, I always have to go and listen to Life in Mono because while being less trip-hop, the beat and the music and the soft vulnerability of Manson's lyrical performance all have that same vibe. And that, in turn, makes it no surprise that the band had Tricky do a remix of this. And that's probably why this became so successful, was because there were a handful of remixes that were done. And and outside of the States, there were remixes in the UK that did well and all over the world. A writer, M.B., wrote for Vox and described Milk as, quote, a stoner's midnight Manhattan taxi tour. I don't know what that means, but that sounds stupid. I don't either. That's what I. That's what the a lot of these have are things that I don't know what they mean. Writer Paul Reed wrote that Milk is an elegant hymn and added that it is impressive and evocative of Ridley Scott's vision of the dark, decaying cityscape of future L.A. in Blade Runner. Which, that I can get behind. That makes sense. I, there's something conceptual that I can see there. And that, I think, is the best description of this album. And it, it's a great end. It's a great end for the album. It's a, it's a good stopping point. Now, the song itself was inspired by a line from Michael Odante's collected works of Billy the Kid. The line is, her throat is a kitchen. And the opening lines of the song is, I am milk. I am red hot kitchen. I am cool. Cool as the deep blue ocean. It's an interesting line, an interesting take on it. Shirley took that line. She was on lyrical songwriting duty. However, even though she had been in other bands and sang for other bands, she was never primary lyricist. When she met with the guys, she may have fudged her credentials a little about her being a songwriter in addition to singing. Duke happened to walk past Shirley one day as she's in the lounge of Smart Studios and she's humming this melody and trying to work out the melody on acoustic guitar. And the way that the band worked, Duke liked the melody that she was humming, thought it was interesting enough. He took it to the rest of the band. So they set up some microphones in the control room. Butch programmed some drum loops. Marker played bass. Duke fiddled around on the Mellotron. And the main body of the song was recorded in about 45 minutes with Shirley's main vocals recorded right there in the control room in one take. As Shirley talks about it, she said, it just had a really beautiful kind of feel to it. We tried to recreate it in the booth later, but it just sounded flat. And so... That's what they have. They have this, essentially, what should have been a demo. That gets promoted to a release. They later fiddled with additional texture elements, and they even had a clarinet part for it, and all of which they decided to just cut out, because what they had was all it needed to be. And Shirley continued explaining, I really like the vulnerability in Sinister Side of Milk. It sounds like it's an innocuous love song, and it's not. It's been dismissed by people as a ballad at the end of the album, and to me, Milk is the darkest, most hopeless of the songs. People say, oh, it's lovey-dovey, so therefore it's a love song, but it's a very bleak song. It's about loss and the fear of loss, about things you can't have and things you will forever wait for. 
I think it says a lot to say that this is that the song, even for garbage, is bleak, and it's cited by some as the most hopeless of the songs on this album. It's a terribly depressing place to leave people. And the final lyric of the song is "I'm waiting for you," which I guess she, you know, meant she's waiting for you to buy the record. <laughs> Yes, that is what she meant. Yes, it, it is kind of a downer, but it's a gorgeous song. It is. So even for a downer, it's still a great place to end the album. For sure. It is. It's beautiful. All right, top three songs, Mark. Go. Top three. Number three, for me, is a tie. It's between Stroke of Luck, which I like because how much it feels like it should be on Depeche Mode's Ultra. Okay. It's a tie between that and Stupid Girl because I love The Clash, and musically, it's... Yep. Strong. It's a strong song with all the different textures. So these these two songs hit number three because of other bands, not garbage. Got it. Number two is Not My Idea. Okay. And number one is Milk. Okay, interesting. How about for you? Number three for me is Stroke of Luck. Number two is Only Happy When It Rains. And number one is Milk. Well, all right then. So we agree on number one. Actually, two out of our top three are the same. Oh, we uh, did that on the Muse episode as well. We did. We did. So I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I would put this on as background music. I'm probably not going to go listen to it regularly, but I did like it more than I more than I thought I would because I wasn't a huge grunge fan. That was one of the things that I found as well is that as an album, it wasn't necessarily something that held my attention, but I did enjoy it as background music while doing other things. Right. Like if you're doing some some computer work, you can put this on and it's not going to distract you, but it's going to be nice complimentary music to what you're working on. Absolutely. I agree with you on on that point completely. But it's interesting because, like we both have talked about, how much garbage, when garbage came out, garbage was such a presence on the radio and on TV, and it was everywhere. And I don't have an exact memory of hearing garbage for the first time, but I can remember a time before garbage. And so I kind of have this vague notion of where music was at, or at least where pop music was at, where the radio was. And while garbage weren't the first band to mix together rock and techno and do the beat, with guitars they were probably the ones to get the most recognition and mainstream acclaim from it yeah they made it more accessible than some of the other bands that had been doing it and i think that in turn helped shape a corner of popular music and kind of helped move things in the wake of grunge and away from grunge And I know that to an extent prior to researching this album, I hadn't fully realized maybe the full influence that this album had. I knew that they were big and I knew that they were very successful. And there are plenty of albums that until I had stopped and looked at the timeline that I didn't realize that if they weren't directly influenced by, they at least benefited from garbage making the sound popular at this time. And so I'd never thought about it, but... Garbage came out a full year before Stabbing Westward put out Wither Blister, Burn, and Peel. And it was a full year before Depeche Mode released Ultra. Even an album like Smashing Pumpkins Adore, there's all things going on on this album that I then hear that remind me of all these other things that came after it that I didn't realize came after it. And I think, if not directly influencing pieces of those things, at least made it viable for those other albums to be as commercially successful as they were. Yeah, I would say they paved the way for a lot of albums at the time, but even more so a lot of the stuff that's still new today. Most of the reviews were positive. I found one that was absolutely scathing and just tore into the album. But the one thing that they did point out was, regardless of love it or hate it, the scale of success that Garbage had and the influence they had, it's extra impressive considering pop music you usually think of as a young person's game, right? Right. This was an incredibly successful pop album that was created by three dudes in their 40s. And this Scottish woman who was 30 being such a force and changing so much. And I think that is possibly the most remarkable thing about this album. Right. What I'm saying is it's not too late for you, Tom. (laughs) No, it definitely is. Well, then it's not too late for Christine. (laughs) (laughs) All in all, it still holds up? I think it holds up. Like we keep saying, it's a very garbage sound, but I don't think the garbage sound is a dated sound. There's so many different influences at play and so much texture and so much happening that you can't put a finger on it and just be like, well, this guitar tone was definitely 92. So I'd say holds up. How about you? Yeah, I agree. For sure. For sure. Any final thoughts before you tell us what we're going to get into on the next episode? No final thoughts. I think I covered all of my thoughts 
And I think we'll do uh, Secret Samadhi by live next fortnight. So it gives us two weeks to prepare, study up. The other live albums were definitely good, but this one came out while we were in high school, and we both listened to it quite a bit, and I remember rocking out to it in your Honda. This is the first of the two that came out while we were in high school. It is. We'll have to do the other at a later date. So check that out. Be sure to let us know what you think. Head over to onceeverytwoweeks.com. You can get a link to all of our social media. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, one final fact before we finish up and log off here. With regards to how Garbage got their name, during VH1's Behind the Music on Garbage, according to Butch, the team drew inspiration for its name from hostile early comment. A friend who was visiting the band heard recorded material, probably an early mix of Vow, and groaned, This crap sounds like garbage. Hmm. True story. Every Two Weeks is brought to you by the Geek Lounge Podcast Network and Burrow Baracho Records. Mm-hmm.